The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We're going to finish out the chapter today. We'll begin at verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul uses a phrase twice in this third chapter. He begins with it, and then he transitions with it here in verse 14. It is the phrase, for this reason. Uh, of course, it is a phrase that indicates that Paul is going to make an argument or make a statement that is predicated on what has gone before. He begins the chapter by saying, For this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. We said that when Paul wrote those words, and we discussed this last week, Paul was talking both figuratively and literally. When he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, it was true. Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. He had given himself over to the service of the Lord and he had given himself over completely. But it was also quite literally that Paul was a prisoner. At the time that he wrote this epistle to the Ephesians, he was imprisoned in Rome. And he was waiting trial for possible execution for capital crimes that is, crimes against the empire before the emperor Nero himself. So it was figuratively and literally true that Paul was a prisoner. And yet we said Paul was a prisoner joyfully. He was joyfully a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And we said that was extraordinary. Because in his former life, prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul had first of all hated Jesus Christ. He had worked against Jesus Christ. He had plotted the downfall of the church. And furthermore, as a Pharisee, he had absolutely despised what? The Gentiles, who he regarded as uncircumcised dogs. That's how Jews in the first century regarded Gentiles. And yet now he says, I am a prisoner willingly for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the Gentiles. And we said, well, what in the world accounts for that change in attitude on the part of the Apostle Paul? And that's what Paul had talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, a great mystery had been revealed to me, something that had been hidden in ages past but has now been revealed to me that I have been initiated into the life 
of Christ. And that is what? That God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between God and man and between Jew and Gentile. And so for this reason, he says, I am a prisoner. And he goes on to talk about that whole mystery. Well, he uses that phrase again here in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I do what? I bow my knees before the Father. What reason is Paul referring to here in verse 14, that he bows his knee before the Father and erupts in prayer? Well, of course, it is this whole notion that God is at work in history primarily through the agency of the church. We said last week that was Paul's whole argument, that when we think about history, we think about history in terms of secular events. We think of history, John Stott said, in terms of presidents and kings and dictators. We think of history as revolving around those events like wars and peace treaties and more wars and more peace treaties. But Paul says, actually, history centers not around those events, but around a people known as the saints of God, unknown to the world, but very well known to God. He says history revolves around the church, which is God's agency for change in the world, the means by which God is undoing the effects of the fall. We said that sometimes history looks meaningless to us. I quoted from Henry Ford last week. In 1919, Henry Ford found himself involved in a libel trial. And somebody went up to him after he left the courthouse and they said, well, what does it feel like to, you know, how do you think you're going to be recorded in history? And Henry Ford said, history is bunk. He didn't want to believe that history has any rhyme, any reason, any purpose to it whatsoever. This is exactly how the Greeks in the ancient world believed. They didn't think that history had any purpose, any direction whatsoever. All of life was cyclical. What goes around comes around. And sometimes we look at the world around us today and it is filled with so much confusion, so much turmoil, so much violence, that we wonder if history has any purpose at all either. But the Apostle Paul knew that history does have a purpose. It is moving toward a grand and glorious climax. And the vehicle by which God is achieving his purposes in history, which will be the redemption of the whole world, is the church. The church is the center of history. And when I say the church, you know I'm not talking about bricks, mortar, or stone. I'm talking about the body of Christ. How is God transforming, changing the world? How is it that God is making all things new? Because that's what he's doing. He's doing it through the agency of the church. The church, you and I, are God's secret weapon. And Paul says, for this reason, because I know that's true, in spite of what things may look around me, in spite of the fact that it may look as though the world is going to hell in a handbasket, Paul says, I know God is working out his purposes, and for this reason, I therefore bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, as members of that church, that mystery hidden before time but now revealed, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a wonderful prayer. And that is one of the most wonderful prayers ever to be uttered by anybody in all of history. 
And Paul says he prays it with great confidence. Whenever I think about the subject of prayer, I'm reminded of a story from the Old Testament. It's a story that many people, unfortunately, are not familiar with because it's one of, not one of the most well-known books of the Old Testament, but it comes from the story of Esther, one of those rather small books in the Old Testament, but a great story. Uh, Esther was Jewish. The scene is depicted up there on the screen. She was Jewish. Um, the children of Israel, as you know, had been carried off into captivity in Babylon. Sometime after that, Babylon itself was conquered by the Persian Empire. And a king eventually ascended to the throne by the name of Xerxes, or Artaxerxes. Now remember, the kings in the ancient world were very powerful people. I pointed out to you last week that kings did not rule uh, as though they were constitutional monarchs. Uh, that's what the Queen of England is today. She has very little power. She has a great deal of symbolic influence, but she has very little real power. But in the ancient world, that was not the case. Kings had absolute power, and this was particularly true of the Persian monarchs. They were absolute rulers, and their word was absolute law. Uh, there were things known as the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which were irrevocable. Once the king spoke them, it was like the, the modern doctrine of papal infallibility. When the pope speaks ex cathedra or ex cathedra from his throne, he speaks with absolute authority, the authority of Peter, his successor or his predecessor. And so that's absolute authority, and it, it cannot be revoked, which has gotten the Roman Catholic Church into trouble more than once. But that's the idea here. So that's what these Persian kings were. And Esther was married off to this king. Xerxes, he was a very powerful man. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story the whole way through. This is just the Reader's Digest condensed version. But there was a plot against the Jewish people in the Persian Empire by one of the king's advisors. And he was plotting their complete downfall. Anti-Semitism has existed at every stage in the history of the world. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons why we know that God has been working through the Jewish people. At one point, um, Queen... Victoria, after the death of Prince Albert, when she was struggling with this grief and beginning to question whether God existed or whether God was good, she went to her prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, who was Jewish, and she asked him a question. She said, how do I know that God exists? And Disraeli turned to her and he said, your majesty, you know because of the Jews. Because of the Jews. When you think about it, they are a small people, they are not a great nation like the nations of the world, and yet throughout history they have always been at the very heart of history. They've always been at the great crossroads of all of the great events. Even in the last century, the 20th century, who was at the very heart of World War II? It was the Jewish people. Even in the Middle East today, who are at the heart of all the events that are taking place in that powder keg of the world? The Jewish people, you see. And Israeli's point was that this is evidence, this is proof of the fact that God is working in and through these people. Well, Esther was a Jewess. She was married off to this very powerful king. But anti-Semitism existed and there was a plot to wipe these people off the face of the earth. And their only hope, their only hope of deliverance was if Esther would intercede on their behalf. Now, what the king did not know was that the very people he was conspiring to wipe off the face of the earth, well, one of his wives, his favorite wife, was actually one of them. And so Esther knew that if her people were going to be saved, she had to inter 
intercede on their behalf. But it was a very dangerous thing to do because nobody was permitted to go into the presence of the king unless they had been summoned. That was one of the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And incidentally, one of the king's former wives had failed to obey his word and she had been put to death as a consequence. So Esther was not permitted to go into the presence of the king unless she had been summoned. The king was meeting with his advisors. And yet her people were in danger of being wiped off the face of the earth. So what did she do? Well, it's a wonderful story. We're told that she decked herself out in her royal robes. She put on her best frock, her best dress. She put on her best makeup. She made herself look as lovely as she possibly could. And then she went and she stood in the courtyard waiting for the doors to open that the king might notice her. When I was a little boy and we told this story in Sunday school, they always told it on a flannel graph. You remember the old flannel graphs? And I always imagined the queen going boldly into the presence of the king because basically that's what she did. We're told that as she stood out there in the courtyard, she caught the king's eye and she was so lovely, so attractive to him that the story goes he raised his scepter, which was a sign of welcome. And the queen went in and she knelt before the king and he was so pleased with her that he said she could have anything that she longed for, even half of his kingdom. And what did Esther do? Esther decided she didn't want half of her kingdom. Instead, she decided, because of her special relationship with the king, to plead her case on behalf of her people before the sovereign. And the story ends with the king having mercy upon his people. And even though it was the law of the Medes and the Persians, he revoked it. And those who had conspired against the Jewish people were ultimately put to death. But they were delivered. And they were delivered because there was one who interceded, you see, on their behalf. One who was lovely and attractive to the king. Well, whenever I think of prayer, that's what I think of. That's our special status, you know. You and I can go boldly. That's the greatest privilege of prayer, by the way. We tend to think that the whole purpose of prayer is so that we can tell God what we need and he can give it to us. You know, as though this were Chick-fil-A or McDonald's. You go through the line and you place your order. Okay, you want a number one Chick-fil-A meal and you want lemonade and all of this. You go to the next window and you pay your tithe and you go to the next window and you pick up your order. That's the way we tend to think about prayer, but that's not what prayer is designed to do. Prayer is a great privilege because it is the opportunity that you and I have to go into the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign of the whole universe, and plead our case. And you say, well, why should God be interested in hearing from us? Well, the same reason why the King was interested in hearing from his Queen. Because we are beautiful in God's sight. Because we are lovely and we are accepted. And so Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And then he goes on to pray. And if you read through this prayer, and we're going to take a look at it, he prays with boldness, with confidence. Paul bows his knee, but he doesn't go in meekness. He goes with confidence. Do you pray confidently when you go before the Lord? 
or do you pray, and you always add on at the end, oh, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You ever do that? You know, sometimes we do that. We think we're sounding pious, don't we? But what we're really afraid is that God is not going to answer our prayers. We're, we're giving God an out, as it were. And we're giving ourselves an out as well. You'll notice in this prayer, Paul doesn't say that thy will may be done. Paul prays bravely and boldly. And, and look at what he prays for here at the end. He said, you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that's a prayer. He's praying that these people may be filled with all the fullness of God. He doesn't say, oh, that you can have a little bit of your riches, Lord, or that they can have a little bit of your grace, a little bit of your knowledge, a little bit of your love. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He says, I am praying that you may experience all the fullness of God. How can Paul do that? How can he pray with such confidence? I want to suggest a number of things to you that can help you perhaps in your prayer life as well. The first thing is this. Paul could pray with confidence because Paul knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he belonged to God. If you are a Christian, you belong to God. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no longer foreigners. God has torn down that dividing wall of hostility. You who were once far off, he says in Ephesians 2, have been what? Brought near. Jesus makes this point very clear in John chapter 6. He says, all that the Father give me will come to me. All that the Father giveth me will come to me. And all that come to me will never be cast out. We've talked about this before. We said that when we are adopted into the family of God, we can never be rejected. Natural children in the ancient world could be disinherited, but adopted children could not. And you and I have been adopted by God's grace and by His mercy. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principality, neither things present nor things to come. Nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's one of the reasons why Paul knew he could go and pray boldly to the Lord, because even if he got it wrong, he was never going to be separated from God. When you pray to God, do you ever, are you ever fearful that you might get it wrong and God might actually punish you as a consequence for asking for the wrong things in the wrong way? Paul could go confidently before the Lord. He says, for this reason, I know. He goes confidently before the Lord. Why? Because he knows he belongs to him. Like Esther, he is lovely in the Lord's sight. Second of all, he understands that God longs to provide for his children. I'll take a look, if you will, at Luke for just a minute. Luke chapter 11. There's a wonderful story here. Jesus is actually talking about prayer. He teaches the disciples how to pray. Chapter 11 of Luke begins this way. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. It's one of the things that they noticed about Jesus, that Jesus was always praying. Jesus had this intimate relationship with the Father, and they wanted to have that kind of a relationship. I had a young woman that came to see me just this week, 
And in the course of the conversation, she said, you know, I've been coming to church for the greater part of my life, she said, but you talk about having a personal relationship with the Lord. She said, I think I know a little bit about God, but I don't have this kind of personal relationship with God that you're referring to. And she said, I want that kind of a relationship. Now, that's the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with the Lord. It is a relationship of intimacy. Well, here on this particular occasion, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, you, you pray, you, you pray in such a way as though God were right there with you. Teach us to pray like that, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, he said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. And then he went on to expand on what he was saying. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There's a reason why Paul said he could pray with confidence. Number one, he knew that he belonged to God, and even if he got it wrong, nothing was going to separate him from God. And number two, he knew that God longed to provide for him. Why? Because he was one of his children. So Paul went confidently, like Esther, into the throne room to plead his case before the Lord. He knew for this very reason, because he belonged to God, because God promised to provide for him, he could go with confidence. When I say confidence, that's what we've been talking about. What I mean was with assurance. With assurance. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 for just a minute. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Paul, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Do you realize that the Lord of the universe, the one who created the heavens and the earth, cares for you? He's not indifferent to your plight. I talked about this in the Matthew study this past week. Is there any prayer that is too mundane to offer up to the Lord? You know, sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, God is so much concerned with, with so many other things. God is concerned with the planets in their orbits, and God is concerned with world peace, and why should God be particularly concerned with my petty little issues? I mean, everybody starts to have aches and pains in the morning. Should I actually pray that God would take away some of those aches and pains? 
I really can't ask that kind of a petty question. God has to be concerned with greater things. Listen to this. The great message of the incarnation, the message of Christmas, and we're fast approaching Christmas. I'm sure the holidays season is going to begin to, to spring upon us any time. The stores are, I'm sure, we, Halloween's almost over, folks, and you know that means Christmas is on its way. But the great message of Christmas, the great miracle of Christmas is that God did what? He came down, and he took on what? Flesh, human flesh. The Greek word there is sarks, and I love to point that out because it doesn't mean flesh in some sort of metaphorical sense. It means flesh, flesh. What you got up with this morning, what you shaved this morning, what you washed this morning. He took on human flesh. The creator of the heavens and the earth took on flesh. And that means that everything that you have struggled with, every ache, every pain, every anxiety you've ever experienced, he experienced it. And he knows. And that means there is no prayer that if it is a concern to you, is not a concern to your Father in heaven. Do you ever say to your children, don't bother me with that? Well, sometimes we do, and then sometimes we go back and wish we hadn't. Well, the Father never says, don't bother me with that. The Father says, come and plead your case and come with confidence. I think this is the example of Mary. Mary's one of the most remarkable people in all of history. She was a woman that, that had absolute confidence in the providence of God. And the angel came to her and told her that she was going to have a child and that it was going to be a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, that there would be no earthly father. Mary only asked a simple question, how is this going to be? And we're told that she explained to her that the Holy Spirit would come and overshadow her so that the child that was born would be the child of the Most High. And Mary simply, what, resigned herself to that great fact, knowing that what? that she belonged to God, that he promised to provide for her, and that whatever concerns, whatever anxiety, whatever fear she might have when she had to go back home and tell Joseph all about it, was going to be taken care of. So Paul says, for this reason he prays with confidence. Because he knows what is true generally is also true specifically. He knows that God has saved us. We belong to him. That is what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, God made us alive even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We've been saved by grace. He also knew that he could go boldly before the presence of God. Why? Because God had not only saved him, God had saved him from something, God had saved him for something. There was a purpose in God saving him. He also knew that God's purpose in saving was to tear down the dividing walls of hostility between the Lord of the universe and mankind, but also between warring peoples. And he knew he could go with confidence before the Lord because he knew that God was working out his plans and his purposes in history. And so Paul goes, as we see here, boldly into the presence of God. Now we have to ask ourselves, what did Paul boldly pray for? And that's where we actually get into the content of this great prayer. It's a model for us. It's an example of prayer for us. If you sometimes wonder what should we be praying for, this is the sort of thing that we should be praying for. Paul prays specifically for all Christians. 
He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Now, here in the English Standard Version, that phrase, for every family, can be a bit confusing. Because that implies that Paul is praying for all of mankind, but that is not actually what he's saying. Anybody out there have the New International Version? Nobody has the NIV this morning? All right. What does it say? Does anybody actually have it in hand? Thank you, Jimmy. Go ahead. Read the verses 14, for, and just 14 will be fine. Ephesians 3.14. Okay, perfect. You'll notice that the NIV translates this not from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, but from whom his whole family in heaven and earth is named. That helps us to understand that what Paul is really praying for here is not just for the whole of humanity. He is praying specifically for the whole family of God. This is a family prayer. I want you to understand something here. Prayer is a privilege, but it is a privilege for Christians. Now, prayers are offered up all across the globe 24 hours a day by all kinds of people in all different kinds of conditions and states. But the prayers that God hears are the prayers of His people. See, everything that Paul has pointed out to us here is based upon the idea that we what? Belong to Him. That we've been adopted into His family. We can go confidently into His presence. Why? Because we belong to Him. Because we are His children. So when Paul prays here, first of all, he prays as a child of God, and second of all, he prays for the family of God. This is a family prayer. Now, you know this to be true. You may pray for a great many people, but isn't it true that you pray for your own family better or more intensely than you pray for anybody else? How many of you have found that to be true? You pray more for your children than you do for anybody else. Or you pray for your spouse, or you pray for your extended family. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is praying for the whole family of God. The NIV says, from whom his whole family is named. The ESV says something slightly different, but what it really means is every family. It means every family unit. So Paul is not praying here necessarily for the pagans. That's not to say that when he went to other places that he didn't pay for the pray for the pagans. But what he is saying here is that he is praying this prayer specifically for the people of God. So this is a prayer for the church. And what does he pray for the church? First of all, he prays that they may be, verse 16, strengthened in their inner being, strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to notice Paul prays for strength here. But he doesn't pray for physical strength. That's not to say that Paul doesn't think that physical strength is important. Obviously, Paul suffered. We're told that he had some sort of a thorn in the flesh, some sort of physical disability that made his life difficult. And he said, three times I asked the Lord to remove it. So Paul did pray for physical strength. But on this particular occasion, what he's praying for confidently 
to God on behalf of the church is that every member of the church might be strengthened in their inner being. That is to be strengthened in your spirit, in your heart, in your soul. Why? Because Paul knew that the Christian life is difficult. Don't let anybody tell you that if you become a Christian, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, everything is going to get better for you. If you hear that kind of message coming out of a pulpit somewhere, I can assure you it is not a biblical message. Because Jesus said the exact opposite. Jesus said, if anyone would seek to follow me, he must first what? Deny himself. That's the first thing. You've got to deny yourself. Then take up your cross and then follow me. Now, there are three parts to that. The first part is deny yourself. That is not easy. Because we live in a culture in which we are encouraged to do what? Indulge yourself. Have it your way. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Deny yourself. No, that's the one thing you shouldn't do. Jesus said, if you're going to be one of my followers, you must first deny yourself. Then you must what? Take up your cross. Well, everybody in the first century knew what that meant. That was an invitation to come and die. Well, we're told to live it up, not die. So that's difficult. That is to say, put others before yourself. When I was a little boy in church, they taught us, this is the way you should look at life. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Well, our world actually takes it and turns it the other way around, doesn't it? I'm on top. Others are second, if it's convenient. And God, well, if he finds his way in there, well, okay. It's difficult, you see, to take up your cross and to die to self. We speak in the uh, liturgy of being living sacrifices, don't we? And here we present ourselves as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Well, you know the problem with the living sacrifice? It always crawls off the altar. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was saying can happen. And then finally, he says, you have to turn your back on the world and you have to come and follow me. Listen, that is hard work. And yet, it is the way to eternal life. This is the irony of the Christian life. Jesus once said, he said, anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. And anybody who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will ever surely find it. Well, how many of you think that that's going to make it easy to be a Christian in the world today? Now, we tend to think that the world is worse off today than it was in previous generations. I want you to understand the world, well, let's put it this way, human nature is no different today than it was when you were growing up. It isn't. People were just as inclined to sin in the 1950s as they are in 2018. I will say this much, however. The opportunities to sin in 2018 are greater. We have greater access to the opportunities to sin. You've heard me talk about the evil day. The Bible talks about the evil day. You know what the evil day is? You all know, you know what the evil day is. The evil day is when the desire to sin and the opportunity to sin meet. And we all know there are times in our lives when we have a desire to sin, but we don't have the opportunity. Then there are those other times in life when you have the opportunity to sin, but not really the desire to do it. The evil day is when the opportunity and the desire meet. Anybody who was a little boy when I was growing up understood this. Any boy that wanted to look at a naked girl 
had to go buy a magazine. And you'd better be careful if you did it. Somebody was likely to see you. Or you had to sneak into a store and get a Sports Illustrated and put it in front of the Playboy magazine. Now, the men are out there chuckling nervously because they know this is true. This is the only way you could, or you could, you know, if your dad was subscribed to National Geographic, then perhaps you could look at those pictures. But this is how you had to do it. But it, it took work, you see, to do it. It's not that the inclination wasn't there. The inclination was always there, but the opportunity just wasn't. Doggone it is what you'd think. But that's not the case today, is it? You don't have to look far. You don't have to sneak around. Because of the devices that we have, access to that sort of material is there without anybody ever knowing it. And it is hard, you see, to discipline yourself, to turn your back on the world. Becoming a Christian is hard work. And that's why Paul prays, above all, that we might be strengthened how? In our inner beings. Listen, folks, if you're going to be serious about Jesus Christ, there is a price to be paid. Make no mistake about it. There are sacrifices to be made. But the promise is that if you give it up, you will ultimately find what your heart really desires. But to do that is hard. And so Paul prays, first of all, for strength in our inner being because suffering and opposition are part of the Christian witness. He also prays that we may be strengthened, but strengthened how? He's very specific here. With power through his spirit. Uh, the Greek word for spirit in the Gospel of John, for the Holy Spirit, is an interesting word. It is the word parakaletos. And it literally means one who comes alongside to help. So Paul is praying that you and I might be strengthened in our inner being to be able to be witnesses because we're part of the church. We said last week that we all have a part to play. Remember that? And, and you don't want to flub your lines. You don't want to mess up your part. You may only have a bit part. Some people have a larger part. But we all have a part to play in God's great redemptive plan for history. And if we don't want to mess up our part, we need to be strengthened in our inner being so that we are strong, we are courageous, we are willing to make the sacrifices but Paul realizes that strength can only come how? By the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away, but he said, soon the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power. Do you ever think about that? Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, was handing off his ministry, the ministry of redemption in the world, to the disciples, to Peter, who, as I have always said, was afflicted with foot and mouth disease, who, who somehow always managed to pass the test and flunk the course. Peter, who denied the Lord not once, not twice, but three times and once to a little girl. He was going to pass it off to James and John, who were known as the sons of thunder. Why? Because they were always shooting off their mouth. And we're always thinking about themselves. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, grant that we might sit one at your right hand and one at your left. And when they didn't get anywhere, they went to their mother and said, Hey, Mom, you go up there and talk to him. <laughs> He's passing it off to Thomas. Thomas, who what? Doubted. 
I will not believe it until I can take my fingers and put them in the nail prints, take my hand and put it in the side. I'm not going to believe it. I don't know what you guys saw, but I do not believe that sort of hocus pocus. Jesus was going to hand the salvation of the world off to them? That is not a very encouraging thought. And yet he said what to them? He said, you don't worry about it. Power will come upon you. The Greek word that he uses there is an interesting word. When Alfred Nobel, the famous Swiss chemist, made the discovery that would become his fame and his fortune, he went to a friend who was a Greek scholar, and he said, I want to know what is the Greek word for explosive power. And his friend said, the word is dynamis. And he said, then that's what I will call my discovery. And he called it dynamite. That's the Greek word that Paul uses there. That is the word that is used in the book of Acts by Luke to describe the power of God. It is the Greek word dynamis. It is an explosive power. But it is a power that comes from outside and fills us. And it is the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who comes alongside to assist us, to help us. God does not leave us comfortless. So Paul prays that the church may what? Well, be filled, be strengthened in their inner being, be helped by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he prays this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Verse 17. That he may be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, the Greek word that is translated here as that God may be rooted or grounded in your hearts or he may dwell in your hearts, the expression there means settling in. It implies that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come alongside to help you for a little time and then when you don't you no longer need help anymore, he, he departs. Sometimes in the, in the uh, scripture we hear two expressions. We hear the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand what those two expressions mean. The filling of the Holy Spirit was something that God did oftentimes in the Old Testament. It was a temporary empowering somebody of somebody to do a particular job. So when Moses had to part the Red Sea, we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, and when he struck the water, the waters parted. That, that, that's the idea. God temporarily fills you for a specific time for a specific task. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, now in some charismatic circles that implies, well, you're so filled with the Holy Spirit you speak in tongues. It's nothing to do with that. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what we call the new birth. It is that time when God the Holy Spirit not only comes alongside to assist us, but He comes and takes up possession in our lives. This is why our bodies are described as temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that when you become a Christian, God himself comes and takes up residence in your life? And he begins what is known as the process of sanctification. Well, we've talked about this before. When you become a Christian, God declares you righteous in his sight. He declares you to be one of his children. I like to describe this, and some of you have heard me say this before. It's like a woman who marries a prince, Meghan Markle. She married a prince. Now, there were some people that didn't feel that she was worthy of being a princess. You know, she, she didn't come from any kind of, you know, blue-blooded British family. She, her family couldn't be traced. She, she wasn't princess material, some people felt. 
But let me tell you something. She went into St. George's Chapel, and she said the vows, and when she came out, regardless of whether anybody thought she was worthy to be a princess, she was a what? She was a princess. That's true of anybody. A prince can fall in love with a harlot. And you might say, well, she's not worthy to be a princess. It doesn't matter. Once she goes into the chapel and she comes back out, she is a princess. Now, hopefully, what's going to happen is that she will begin to grow into the very thing that she's been declared to be. And that's what God the Holy Spirit does with us. God the Holy Spirit declares us to be sons and daughters of God, but then He comes and takes up residence in our lives in such a way that He begins to transform us into the very thing we've been declared to be. And that's why the good works that Paul mentioned early in this epistle to the Ephesians are the evidence of our salvation. They're not the means to our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. They are the sign that God is at work in our lives. Do you see yourself growing in holiness? Do you see yourself growing more into a Christ-like character? You know, sometimes people come to me and they say, I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried whether or not I'm a Christian. How can I have assurance? Well, you can have assurance on the basis of two things. One, you can have assurance on the fact that when God says it, you can believe it. It's exactly what Jesus said there in John. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So if God has declared you to be a child, you are a child. But if you want evidence, absolute evidence of that fact, then take a look at your life. Do you see yourself growing in grace? Do you see yourself growing into the full stature of Christ? Do you see good works being produced in your life? And when I say good works, I'm not talking about the good works that are pleasing to mankind. I'm talking about the good works that bring glory to God. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things that Christ had in abundance, do you see them evident in your own life? And you might say, well, I don't see a whole lot of that. Well, the question is not do you see that in abundance. The question is do you see it at all? Because if you see it at all, it's a sign that Christ is present by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. He will take care of pruning you in such a way that you produce more fruit. but fruit is the evidence of salvation. So that is what Paul is praying for, that Christians may be strengthened in their inner being, that they may be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit, that He may dwell in their hearts, and that they may be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. You all know that passage from 1 Corinthians, don't you? That passage that is read, I think, at most weddings, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Listen to these words again. You know them probably almost by heart. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'll tell you what love is not. It is not a secondhand emotion. We talk about love as though it's something that happens to us by chance or by accident. We fall in love 
I oftentimes deal with couples and I'll say, what seems to be the problem in your marriage? We just seem to be falling out of love. That's the way we talk about love, as though it's something we fall into, like falling down a flight of stairs or falling out of a chair. The way Paul describes love here, it's pretty hard work, folks. Love is always patient and always kind. How many of you are always patient and always kind? Lovers never envious or boastful. It's never arrogant. It's never rude. How many of you are never rude? Love is not irritable or resentful. This is a wonderful passage to preach on when a young couple comes to be married. I'll tell you, you can stand up in front of a congregation and say, here's one for the men. Love is not easily angered. And inevitably, you'll see some woman elbowing her husband. And then I always say, and here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is hard work. And Paul's prayer for these people is that what? That they might be rooted and grounded in love. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. If you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but you do not have love, you're nothing but a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. Is your life characterized by love? true love, that forgiving, agape, self-sacrificing love of Christ. That's what he prays for. And he doesn't just ask that they might be rooted and grounded in love. He asks that they may have the strength, listen to this, to grasp the fullness of Christ's love. What is the fullness of Christ's love? Paul describes it for us here in Romans chapter 5. Most of the time, you and I love people because they are lovable. And sometimes that's the way we think God loves us. Of course he loves me. I'm likable. I'm lovable. Who wouldn't love me? But Paul says that God loved us and showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's the kind of love that Paul is praying might be in the life of the church. That love that loves not the attractive, not the lovable, not the PLU, the people like us. It is that love that loves the enemy. It is that love that loves the unlovable, the despised, the ugly of the world. Now, you can't do that in and of your own strength. That's why Paul prays for the inner working of the Holy Spirit to come and so transform you. You're going to have to become a new creation that by becoming a new creation, the agency of the church might bring about a new creation on earth. That's the prayer that God is uttering. Jesus Christ is uttering on your behalf and mine as he stands before the Father. It is the prayer that Paul utters here in Ephesians for the life of the church. It is a model prayer for you and for me today. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we were a people like that? A people who were strengthened in their inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit. A people in whom God took up residence and began to transform our lives. A people who were willing to turn their back on the world, take up their cross and follow Him. A people who were willing to love the unlovable, not those who treat them well, but even those who mistreat them. Can you imagine what the world would be like? 
You think it would be a different place? Well, let me tell you something. That's what it means to be the church. It's not going through the rites and the ceremonies. It's not praying on our knees on Sunday and on our neighbor every other day of the week. It is being a new people who live in a new way that is so countercultural that a new heaven and a new earth begins to appear and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's Paul's prayer with confidence for the church. He prays it with confidence because he knows that is God's will for the church. It should be our prayer as well. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we would be this kind of a church. Paul prays with such confidence. It's a bold prayer. He prays that we may be filled with all the fullness of the love of Christ, that people in coming to know us may come to know Him whom to know is life everlasting. Lord, the city of Charleston would be a radically different place if God would just take the people here at St. Philip's the lives of the priests, the lives of the parishioners, and transform them. We know we cannot do this in and of our own strength, but we know that you send us the power of the Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside to assist us, to take up residence in our lives. And we pray that he would, that there would be less of us and more of him, that like John the Baptist, we might decrease, that he might increase, that we might show that love, that immeasurable love of Christ that loves the unlovable to the world. May your will be done, Lord, in this church and in the church at large. For Jesus' sake, amen.